The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about how they measure success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. At 40 Strategy, we provide strategic planning consulting to help organizations realize and achieve their dreams. Bill, basically what we do is we help companies and organizations create their strategic plans and measure the right KPIs for success. You probably are aware of this. Only 10% of organizations actually get two-thirds of their strategic objectives done. And I don't know about you, but I, I was pretty crazy when I heard those numbers. Do you agree? Yeah, I see businesses do strategic planning uh, retreats, and then nothing happens for 12 months. <laughs> exactly. And, and so we, we're trying to change that. We're trying to have this thing be more successful at 40 Strategy. Your success is our passion. Uh, that's why organizations call us to help. Not only do we come up with a strategy, but proven practices that can actually get it done. Harvard research shows that when you actually do the right KPIs, you can triple the likelihood of your success. So if you'd like to learn more, please email us, catch like catching a ball at 40strategy.com. I always like to do a shout out on our shows. And this one is going to be to one of my longtime friends, uh, Brett Stewart. Brett, uh, this is a shout out to you. Thank you for being one of our loyal listeners. And actually, you are one of the ones who provides me real feedback on whether these shows are good or bad. So thank you so much. And uh, I appreciate all of your help. It was great seeing you in Nashville recently. And if you have any suggestions to anybody else uh, about making this show better, please, once again, send us an email to catch at 40strategy.com. Love to hear your feedback, which leads us to our guest, Bill, which you, if you're watching and you heard his feedback just mentioned ago, Dr. Bill Connerly is a senior contributor to Forbes at Duke University is where he got his PhD and a consultant who connects the dots between the economy and business. He's worked in economics and corporate planning at two Fortune 500 corporations and at a major bank where he's a senior vice president. Companies have used Dr. Connerly's expertise to help with decisions regarding capital expenditures, inventory levels, expansion into new markets, pricing and business models, and financial structure. Bill has spoken to over 1,300 business audiences in five countries and 31 states. You can see his articles in Forbes.com. He's also the author of The Flexible Stance, Thriving in a Bust Boom Economy, as well as Biznomics. Got that right? Um, I probably said that wrong there, Bill. Uh, who has Don't been, worry. He's, yeah, he's been interviewed on PBS, CNN, CNBC, and quoted in the Wall Street Journal, Fortune Magazine, and US Today. And you get to hear Bill Connerly right here today on the Measure Success Forecast. Bill, thank you so much for being on the Measure Success Podcast. Great to be here, Carl. Well, um, and, and I'll say again, just, and, and I'm saying this sincerely, Bill, um, I've, I've had the privilege of being in the audience uh, when Bill has been a speaker 
and economics multiple times. And he is truly one of the absolute best that's out there. So I, I highly encourage you, if you are into those who are hiring people to do things, to, to, to hire him and to bring him in because he is, he is extraordinary. He, and what I really like about him is uh, his newsletter. It, it, I love it. He's, it's called Connecting the Dots. And it's because often economics can seem very esoteric, but he helps try to provide a practical reality behind it. Bill, explain to the audience, I obviously did a, a bit of part and did something off your bio, but explain a little bit more detail about what you do and help out with organizations out on a regular basis. Well, my goal is to help business leaders use uh, economic insights to improve what's going on in their company. And I'm an economist. I fell in love with economics when I was 16 years old. I've done purely theoretical stuff. I've done some public policy research. But what I really like is helping, helping businesses really help their customers. And I have found it to be very fun helping businesses say, hey, where are the best markets for the goods or services that the, the company provides, or what are the good uh, service delivery methods? So it's taking my economic expertise and helping them. About half of my work relates to the current economic forecast. And um, I'll, I do many presentations to corporate boards and trade associations. And instead of just whining about you know, the clowns in Washington. Uh, what I try to do is help business leaders see how the economic changes will impact how they're running their business. And um, one way I sometimes put it is, uh, what's on your to-do list? And uh, if a business leader has uh, last year's problems on the to-do list rather than next year's problems, that company is going to suffer. Yeah, that's uh, thank you. Thanks for providing those insights. And so um, we're going to uh, we're going to do something a multimedia presentation here. We'll see if I could pull us off properly here, uh, Bill. I'm going to pull up one of your your charts. Yeah, we'll see if this comes up properly. Hang on just a moment. I uh, do a monthly newsletter, which is what you're talking about. That's the right. Businomics right. newsletter. It goes out to my four thousand closest friends, and anybody can subscribe to it. That's right. Okay, so here we are. Can I think oh, you, yeah. I, you can see on the screen here. Okay, so here we are. Here is one of your, your forecasts. And, and I think one of the most interesting, so what we're showing here for those who are listening to the forecast, um, listening to this, there's a US economic forecast chart, which is showing growth. And then there's corporate profit after tax, which is showing growth. One of my questions to you, Bill, is are things better today than they were right before COVID started? In the aggregate, Yes. That doesn't mean that everybody's better off. Obviously, we've had deaths, illness, uh, job losses, but GDP is above the level that it was at before the pandemic. However, we're still below trend. So GDP usually grows, employment usually grows. And even though we've regained the uh, previous level of output, uh, we would have been uh, a good bit higher had it not been for the pandemic. So I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, so including pandemic, so are you saying if it wasn't for the pandemic, things would have rebounded faster already? Well, well there, there would not have been a rebound. We would have had continued growth. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, we are here and without the pandemic, we would have been up there. Got it. 
Got it. Okay. Okay. So we are, so good point. So for, in terms of gross, if it wouldn't have happened at all, we would have been even higher economics would have been flying. Um, but then we had, of course, these, these businesses and it's been a bit arbitrary, right. Of, of depending on who, which side of the ledger you were on, if you were a restaurant in downtown yeah. New York, not so good for you. Right. Yeah. Uh, but if you were zoom <laughs> recording on today, yeah. couldn't have been better, you know, in terms of business. Um, who, who, what surprised you in terms of some of the winners and losers that have happened as a result of COVID? That's a good question. And it's one of those things where in retrospect, everything seems logical mm. and reasonable. And, uh, but at the time uh, I was surprised. Um, oh, and do you want to continue with the screenshot? Yeah, I got to pull it. Thank you. I was, yeah, I was okay. literally just going to pull it off. All right. Uh, there we go. That was our multimedia presentation we had here today. Right. But um, so, so a big change is, and I was de speaking a, a couple of days ago to a group of people in the agricultural and agricultural marketing sector, mm. and they were hit by uh, consumers were eating in restaurants less often and eating at home more often after the pandemic. And if you think about it, those are different uh, delivery channels for the food. So we were still eating potatoes, but instead of going to the French fry manufacturers who mostly sell to restaurants, they were going to individuals who mostly bake them at home. Mm -hmm. And it's slightly different product, pack, different packaging. So we had all of these supply disruptions, even though people were still eating as much as ever. <laughs> we also saw that people could not travel and uh, go out to eat, go to concerts. They had money left over. So what did they do? They tried to buy bicycles and new blinds for, for the family room. And all of a sudden, bicycles and blinds are on back order. Uh, and it's uh, one of the things I love about economics is if you get the, sort of the causation right, it's a nice logical progression. But where, when you're in the middle of it, it's kind of hard to see what's happening and what's going to happen next. That's right. That's right. So you, you just touched on something that is clearly top of mind for so many people, whether back in the early days of COVID when you couldn't find toilet paper to today, you have trying to order a truck. It might be 18 months before you get it delivered. I, I was recently in uh, Los Angeles, flew over Long Beach, and there was, and I didn't get the count, but I talked to somebody who worked for one of the major logistical, log logistics company on that same trip, and she said she had counted 50 ships waiting it to come into port. Why is that happening? And, 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 and what type of impact is that happening you know, on the rest of the supply chain, just that alone? Right. Our um, sort of global shipping commercial system handles small variations fairly well. It's used to small variations. It is not used to giant ups and downs. And in the first few months of the pandemic, global shipping uh, just cratered. And a lot of people focus on, you know, um, uh, imports versus exports, which are better. But if you just look at the total volume of international trade, it plummeted, it bounced back. And then starting like January of this year, it took another big surge forward. 
people have income, especially in the wealthier developed countries. There's a greater sense of optimism that we're getting through this. And so they started ordering stuff. Mm. Also, manufacturing companies in the early days of the lockdown, they said, ooh, the economy is going into recession. And Carl, you know this as well as I do. What you do in the early stages of the the recession is you pull out your recession playbook. And the recession playbook says, cut cash outlays. So let's cut back on purchasing materials. Let's uh, cut back hours to our employees and we'll have a hiring freeze so we don't replace the, those who retire. Um, and uh, No travel. Right, right. <laughs> but the, the important thing is you cut back on your production because it's a recession and then people want to buy stuff. Mm-hmm. So we lost a couple of months uh, of production in many different sectors. And then the demand was unusually strong and people were substituting durable goods for uh, services. Mm. And, um, you you know, the services were never delivered on uh, container ships. (laughs) So all of a sudden we just had a change in the mix. Uh, And if those cruise liners could have been repurposed as container ships, we'd solve the problem. We'd have the capacity, but it just doesn't. I mean, I've been on a cruise ship and you just can't get a 40 foot shipping container in the average uh, uh, cabin on a cruise ship. It would be so, kind of interesting to see one of those containers though in the pool. On top of <laughs> exactly. They could. So we just had um, a bigger volume of change than the system was constructed to handle. So what, what are you reading and hearing and seeing in terms of how long just that shipping aspect alone is going to take to normalize again? Well, the shipping aspect will improve gradually by itself. Plus, I believe after we get through this delta wave of uh, COVID, that people will cut back on their purchases of the goods that have to be shipped, and they'll shift more into the services. They'll start going out to eat, uh, going to concerts, going uh, traveling, and that reversal of the change in patterns will help. But I think it's going to be tight in the shipping industry for at least a year. But what we are experiencing in our everyday life, like you go down to Walmart to do a little bit of shopping for the kids, uh, Christmas presents, uh, a lot of what we are seeing is a labor shortage. It Mm. looks like a shipping industry problem, but well, one of my clients um, uh, is a manufacturing company and they were running short on their brass that they use as a raw material. And they called up their supplier and he says, oh, I've got all your brass on a truck. I just don't have a truck driver and I'm a thousand miles away from you. So that is kind of a transportation problem, but it's really a labor problem. Yeah. And other companies uh, are seeing they're they're quoting longer um, delivery times and they'd like to increase their production, but they cannot find the workers. So a lot Mm. of our supply chain problems are worker problems. So going back to the ships that are sitting out of Long Beach, is that yeah. some of the same problem as, as like the literal inability to process the, the cargo ships coming in because of lack of labor? Yeah. And that, that's you, you read the, the comments from the people in L.A. and Long Beach that they're having trouble with truck drivers to move the containers off the dock. 
there. The railroads are backed up. Um, there are COVID restrictions that make the labor less productive. And it all comes back to labor. Hmm. I, I uh, talk, was talking with a client and they were trying to ship something from uh, Portland to Eugene. Sorry, Eugene to Portland. And it ended up going to like Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> and then the best part is they said, well, good news. We're not going to charge you for the difference <laughs> to Cleveland, but it's still going to be a week later. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. like, That's yeah, right. how, and, and so not only are we having these shortages, but you have um, little real logistic competency problems, right? That are taking place because of new people coming in, uh, less experience. Uh, it's just, it's, it's more than just one thing. And uh, it, yeah. it's, it's so, so are you saying, or this is my, my, my silly question, but should we put a little extra water under the Christmas tree this year? Um, expecting maybe some of those presents we thought were going to come in around Christmas time might come around January. Is that possible? Things like that might happen this Christmas season? Yeah. And let, let me answer a broader question. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I talk to business leaders about inventories, you know, these people have had it pounded in their head for two or three decades. Reduce your inventories. Right, right. Bring, bring down. Yeah, just in time, all of that stuff. And I'm saying, hey, uh, let's, why don't you build inventories? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, you're tying up your working capital and it could be at a bank earning approximately diddly squat interest. And why not use that working capital to build up your inventory? It's a reversal. And, and, but, but today we know that our whole supply chain system has gotten more fragile. And it's going to be a few years before it gets better. And even then, uh, you look at normal times. We had the um, typhoon and earthquake in Japan disrupted supply chains, floods in Thailand. There's always something going on. Right. Um, and I think companies are going to come out of this saying, let's, let's have a little bit more cushion, a little bit more inventory, and plan on there being occasional disruptions. I, I think that's really interesting. And, and you're right, a bit contrary to what has been been told to all of us, right? Especially myself, you know, in the, in the CFO operations hat that I've worn for many years, it's like inventory lower, 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 lower. I always view inventory as like oil in an engine, right? Um, you have too much oil, it's a mess. You have no oil, it's your engine's broken. Exactly. But you need to have just enough, right? To make sure yeah. that it's going properly. And that's not no oil. Right. Yeah, and right. I think there's that fine balance in, in knowing what that should be, because I know multiple companies have lost out on millions and millions of dollars because they couldn't ship. They, they, exactly. they have the orders in hand and, and then they end up losing it to a competitor or they just no longer have the money. And, you know, because your opportunity to ship it was gone. And it, it's I, anyways, really challenging time, I think, for those who are caught in the, uh, once again, the durable yeah. goods. I appreciated your insight because I was not familiar with that of people are buying more durable goods because they're not going out and doing services. Yeah. And that was interesting to me to, yeah. to hear that. So I appreciate that. And uh, if, if I can just jump on a little bit further, uh, I'm also cautioning those people who are benefiting selling boats and bicycles and blinds that some of those purchases would have happened anyway in the year 2022 or 2023 or 2024, and they happened in 20 and 21. 
So I think sales may be soft in some sectors that have been uh, the beneficiary. I think that's very wise advice, Bill. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. You know, it just We have concluded the good news portion of this interview. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So um, did you ever in your life anticipate that you would be putting on your graphs COVID infections and deaths? Um, no, but I actually wrote um, an article, boy, some years back, looking at the Spanish flu. Uh, this was when we had one of those avian flu worries. Mm -hmm. And I pulled that out and I said, well, what would it mean? And uh, it turns out that the Spanish flu misnamed uh, was much uh, less serious economically than this one is. But uh, it's been on my radar screen for some years. Mm. And so I'm, I'm curious, just, and I mean, I, I have what I think, but why do you post those and why is it so important to track the trends of COVID yeah. uh, from an economic standpoint? Right. Uh, because people uh, are changing their behavior based on that. And the people include everyday people like you and me and also our political leaders. But both of those are important. For instance, the, um, the Saturday night before uh, Oregon's governor announced lockdowns, this would be March of 2020, my wife and I went out to dinner, nice restaurant downtown, a place that would normally be full on a Saturday night and half the tables were empty. So it was legal for the restaurant to be open and people to go there, but they were at 50% of capacity just because people were saying, I'm going to be cautious. And then the governor took out the other 50%. Yep. So I think as a rough rule of thumb, uh, the actual government rules are, you know, something like half of the effect, uh, but personal rules are the other half. Mm -hmm. And so if you're running a business, I think you need to know, are people going to be spending their money on those uh, services that are person-to-person -person kinds of services, uh, or are they going to be spending on, on goods? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I appreciate that of, of, of and, and seeing the trends, right? Because I think right now in the, the fourth, the, if we call it the fourth wave or the Delta variant, yeah. whatever we want to call it, it my, my understanding is really is decline. It's on, we're on the crest, yeah. right? You know, we're, we're coming off of that right now. Um, but that's not what you experience in day-to-day -day life. It, 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 yeah. You know, it's interesting. Like, it's like, well, now we need to do something. It's like, what's, it's technically already passing, yeah. right? Experientially. Uh, but it's not necessarily what we're doing every day. You know, I, I, like you, Bill, I travel a fair amount. And my experience in being in Nashville versus Portland couldn't be more different. Yeah. You know, in terms of what we have to wear, what we're doing, what restaurants we could go, what, what bars we could go to. Yeah. Very, very different experience. Um, and uh, have you seen as a result of that, and I'm, I'm just curious about this, a, a state like Oregon, which has been, um, what, would I, what would I say, maybe one of the more controlled states in terms of what you can and can't do in terms of COVID, wearing masks, uh, not being able to go out, et cetera. Have those states been more hit economically on a negative basis as a result of those policies versus other states like Texas, which has been much more open. Uh, have you been able to see some of that state-to-state -state data versus COVID? I'm just curious. I'm so you curious. want to jump into political trouble here? No, no, I, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to make this a political statement. I'm more curious. Yes. 
from a, from an economic state basis, yeah. has it impacted the economics of the yeah. states respectively? Uh, in a couple of years, um, a whole generation of young economists will use this as the subject of their dissertations and their first published papers, and we'll have really great information on that. We're a little bit soon. My gut feel says uh, the lockdowns uh, hurt the economy uh, without doing much to help on COVID, maybe a little bit, but not a lot. Uh, but they were very negative to um, the lockdowns were very negative to the economy. But take this as sort of a preliminary judgment. And let's uh, unless we unless you're going to make a, a policy um, <laughs> withhold judgment. But I will t- let me tell you something I did learn. One of my clients wants me uh, ha- every quarter. I do a deep dive into the metropolitan areas where they're most concentrated. And one of those areas um, has been growing well economically, but they are very have a very low vaccination rate. Hmm. I looked at the COVID chart, and not only are their cases back up to that December peak, their deaths are back up to the December peak. Hmm. Another metro area that this uh, customer of mine um, uh, works in has a very high vaccination rate, like one dose uh, 90% of the, the adult population. It's really high. And there I did the chart on deaths and it hardly moved. Mm. It hardly moved. And it's, it's like uh, anybody who was unvaccinated saw seeing those two charts would have to have to run out and get a shot, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and, it's, and it's important yeah. if I can just jump on. It's yeah. important for for people running businesses in different parts of the country to understand those different parts of the country. Because if you tell one of your 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 regional manager in Texas uh, to if you compare that person against the regional manager in California, you know, the number is going to be very different. I, I think that's well said is, is um, we're one country, but the regional differences in how you sell and, and relate to uh, your your consumers, right? Or even your business to business, right? It is is different and the expectations are different. Um, And I think that's always the hardest thing of sometimes when I've worked with international companies and they come here and they're like, well, just, just do sell it all in the U S and it's like, have you traveled to Oklahoma? Have you traveled to Florida? Have you traveled to Portland? It couldn't be more different. Right. You know, and yes, we, we carry the same flag, so to speak, but, but the um, cultural differences and how to sell and what you can say is still different with them right. uh, respectively. And, 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 and I think it is important. What you, you're also saying is you have to separate a bit of the economic impact, but also the COVID impact. Right. And right. then the respective fears are not around that, right? Yeah. You know, and and, and I, I've noticed them very different, you know, depending on where the areas I've been in respectively. Um, you know, throughout this past two years. And it's been very interesting. I, up until recently, Bill, I hadn't even said I've been traveling because um, I didn't want to talk about it because I didn't want people to shun me. Right, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and now, you know, this is vaccinated and, and been out and, you yeah. know, been quote unquote safe. Um, I feel a little bit more comfortable with it. But there was a period of time I was not posting on Facebook that I was in Florida because um, people thought you're going to be death, dead with the plague. And Anyways, it's just interesting these times that we've had and how we've had to deal with it and communicate. So this, this leads to another question, and I, I gave you a little tip off ahead of time, um, but didn't give you a chance to research this, of course. So um, 
I was, what I just mentioned, I was recently in Nashville. I was talking to an attorney who was from Bozeman, Montana. I'd never been to Bozeman, I don't think, uh, or I've been to Montana before, but I don't think I've specifically been to Bozeman. And she was talking about how the homes there are going up dramatically. And so I was just curious, I, I did a little research afterwards and it was very timely because I knew I was going to be talking with you, Bill. So I wanted to, you know, to, but this was, these were the facts. Uh, the daily, the Bozeman Daily Chronicle and the, said the medium home price, this is in June of 2021, was $720,000, a 49% increase year over year. Homes in the market are only on market for 22 days, while the median income is only $55,000. This is based on 2019 numbers, which I don't think has changed too much. Uh, that, that would mean effectively a $3,400 per month mortgage payment or $40,800 and mortgage payments alone, if you are a median person to have a home, Bill, I don't get this. Um, right. How can this be true? How can a place that is uh, very remote in Bozeman, Montana, have homes that are worth $720,000 where there's no way the median person can afford that home? Yeah. Help give me some insights here. One of my favorite books is, can you see this? Yes, How to Lie with Statistics. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> one has to be, I keep it at my fingertips. Uh, one has to be cautious about medians. So imagine you've got a um, uh, semi-rural community and uh, a bunch of rich people move in. Uh, the median income doesn't move very much but they want big fancy houses. So the median home price ends up going up. And we've seen that um, remote work is one issue. People, you know, in, when I first heard about people setting up businesses in Los Angeles or Chicago, and then moving to Montana, buying a little mini ranch in the Rockies, uh, the locals were calling them modem cowboys. Uh, <laughs> And the current generation does not know what a modem is. Modem but... cowboys. That's, that's modem awesome. Cowboy. So uh, people um, are doing more remote work without a doubt. And also the pandemic led many people to rethink what's important to them. <laughs> Family, work, connections, lifestyle. And that led a number of people to say, you know, I don't need to be in the city. And I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, and that has helped a Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Bend, Oregon, and um, uh, some of the uh, East Coast uh, coastal cities or Asheville, North Carolina, I think is doing pretty well. So in those places, it's kind of tough because all of a sudden you've got an influx of, of uh, people trying to spend a lot of money, but you still need those lower paid service jobs. Across the whole country, we're seeing real strong, uh, not quite as strong as Bozeman, but strong home price appreciation. And I think that's being driven by the low mortgage rates. So, and of course, so this leads to the question, and this is why I think this would be a great conversation for the audience, because half of people have homes and the other half want homes, right? So, and then the other, and then the people who have homes are wondering whether they should buy or sell, right? Yeah. And I, of course, we know we can never fully predict the future, but the Fed, I believe, has already uh, given us some information in 2022. They plan to um, start the, quant the quantitative easing is going to start decreasing, right? Right. I believe that was correct. That was said just recently. So 
and I and I've heard some information of boy, if there's a 50 basis jump in mortgage payments, um, the affordability is going to go down substantially in in some of these homes. So is there a are, are we at risk of of getting and I'll just call it out, are we at risk of being back at that 2007, 2008 event? where all of a sudden there's this massive overhang, right? Of, of homes that are just completely overvalued. And, um, and then even worse, there's people who are gonna be, um, you know, the, we're, we're gonna have a recession as a result of it, right? As a result yeah. of that, do you see, are we in that same thing or is it different this time? Uh, no, it's different this time. Okay, and why? We'll, we'll explain oh, the oh, oh, you want the explanation Yeah, too. of course, yeah. Why is it different? Because I'm, I'm trying to okay. help the audience you go and, back and get to, comfortable with this. Sure, go back to 2003, 2004, 2005, and we count the number of housing units being built, either an apartment unit or a single family home, or we can add in mobile homes, you know, manufactured housing. And we also know what the population growth is, on average, we live about two and a half people per household. So you can figure out sort of roughly what the demand, underlying demographic demand is. And it changes. Sometimes people are more likely to have a roommate or get divorced. So, you know, the, the 2.5 isn't rock solid. But it was clear in 2005, we had been overbuilding building more houses than we needed. And that was fueled by speculators wanting to buy to flip. We have not been overbuilding. Some of the people in the industry say we've been underbuilding. Uh, I think they uh, have not caught on that our population growth is much slower now. But we certainly have not been overbuilding. And today, what's amazing is we've had, you know, strong pressure, upward pressure, on home prices, and the home builders are not able to deliver more new houses to the market. Mm. If they could, that would ease the price pressure. But why can't they deliver more new houses to the market? Supplies of building materials, right. skilled labor, as well as buildable lots, in, particularly in on the coasts where the um, uh, land development restrictions are fairly tight. So... So if I'm understanding or recapping what you're saying there is because um, homes are not keeping up, the, the building of new homes and capacity is not there for the population, um, it's, it's creating effectively scarcity of supply. And so therefore the demand, if you may, is, is, is causing the real increase combined with lower mortgage rates. Uh, cheaper, cheaper interest rates. So yeah. therefore we can buy, that's what's increasing the value of homes. Is it that simple? Uh, well, some of it is uh, the home buyer could get more home at a 2.8% mortgage than, you know, a 3.8% mortgage. Right. But also uh, there were families who had a vision of buying a house in like 2024 mm. and they did the arithmetic with uh, a 3% mortgage and they said, oh, we can buy a house this year. We don't have to wait until 2024. So yeah. we were pulling some demand from the future. Plus, there were some people, I don't think a lot, but some people who had been long-term apartment dwellers. And then they said, well, we're going to work remotely. We ought to have more space. And it's easier to get more space if you uh, live in a house than in an apartment. And also, um, it was less fun living in a big city. 
Mm -hmm. I've got a son who lives in Manhattan. And during the pandemic, it became a lot less fun living in Manhattan. Right. And, and so there's a bit of the inverse. We were talking about some of these cities that have been capitalizing from this, right? From Asheville to Bozeman yeah. to um, Coeur d'Alene. Uh, but then you have cities where there appears to be a little bit of an exodus, right? Yeah. You know, that, that's taking place. And I think many people who are probably listening are aware of how Texas and Austin in particular have been just growing like crazy. You know, people have been moving to, to certain areas. Um, so talk about that inverse a little bit. So there's some, there are, it appears to be, there are some losers in this and uh, in the inner city. So what's happening there? And is this a long-term, do you think this is going to be a long-term trend now of, of the city is no longer the, the cool place to live in anymore? That's a great question. And I'm going to speculate because I don't have a, a firm answer. Mm -hmm. uh, it's still fun to be in a city if you're young and the city is working. Mm. Um, right. Okay, so there's two things there: <laughs> fun and working. Meaning, it's I'm saying working. You're probably referring to a social, economic, political. Ex exactly. Experience. You, you yeah. know, yeah. The, the trash is picked up. It's yeah. safe to walk down the street. I moved to um, San San Francisco when I was 28 years old and lived right in in North Beach. It was fun. It was really fun. And I understood when my uh, younger son decided to move to um, uh, New, New York, to Manhattan. And my other son had moved to Seattle with a criterion that he wanted to be able to walk to work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I never expected to be able to walk to work. So, you know, when you're young and especially single, it's fun. Once you get a couple of kids you know, living in an apartment is less fun. You know, you want to open up the back door and say, go outside. Uh, but if you're on the 14th floor, it's kind of hard to kick the kids out of the, uh, the house. Yep. Yep. Including the dog. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So I think that, you know, the millennials are aging. I think they'll be more suburban. Uh, but the cities that, that keep the quality of life good for urban residents, I think, will bounce back, but not quite as strong because yeah. some people were living in the city just because they did not want to commute. But if you're only going into the office once or twice a week, a longer commute isn't so bad. Yeah. But I worry about um, I worry about Portland, where I am. I worry about San Francisco and Seattle in terms of the crime, the homelessness and um whether their whole metropolitan area can survive if the central city doesn't turn around. Uh, yeah. As we, as we, um, Bill, I, I, I feel a little bit bad about this, but it's true. You know, I, for years, we've been able to brag about uh, Portland, right. As, as yeah. it was for 20 plus years, it was the one of the gems of the, of the nation. And, yeah. and people, whenever I'd say I'm from Portland area, they'd be like, Oh, I love Portland. I love the restaurants and I can't wait to go there. Da, 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 da. Now I say something and they say, are you okay? Yeah, exactly. And, and so I've literally have to change my language. now I say I'm from Northwest Oregon, an hour from the beach. <laughs> and all of a sudden they go, Oh, okay. Cause of course they don't know where that is exactly. And, um, and I am, I'm not, I'm the outskirts. I'm this outside edge of the rural uh, is where I live. But, but it is interesting of these uh, cities uh, like Portland um, where boy, I hope, I hope, for their sake, right? You know, that things could change. Otherwise, um, I think the trends are going to be negative for them for the long run, right? You know, how, I, 
people only have so much patience, I think, uh, for things to turn around. So I'm curious. I want to say I'm curious. And then when you get down to the homes perspective, homes are really expensive in the inner city. Well, let's go back to in the early 80s, nobody lived downtown, right? And then yep. it, it became a hip place in the 2000s. Now, all of a sudden, 2021, you, you see something in decline again. And I'm just curious how long that trend is going to be before you know it gets back. But um, anyways, we'll find out. I guess the crystal ball will tell us about how those things uh, change in the future. Um, Bill, this has been, uh, oh, there it is. That's the crystal, ball. the crystal ball. You asked for it. I've got it. Does that, can you shake it? Does it have a number? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a magic eight ball. <laughs> Bill, um, so what, what is something I didn't ask that I should have asked that you want to share with the audience today? Something you didn't ask. Um, uh, okay. How about this? Uh, a person running a business, going about it, trying to keep keep his or her head down, focused on that. Uh, how does the person both focus on the um, the business, but also there's so much going on in the world? You know, mm. we've talked about COVID. We've talked about the, the the problem of cities, social attitudes. We haven't touched political change in China. Uh, the real challenge is how do you keep up with it all? Mm. What do you recommend? What's, what's your, oh, I, I was asking you. <laughs> well, it, you know, this is the funny irony. I, you know, honestly, what I have done is I've, I've, I've really um, carved out and, and done less. Yeah. I, I honestly, Bill, I've, I've actually really narrowed the amount of input I'm getting from quote unquote, the news media. Yeah. yeah um, and the reason is because I can go, I can go crazy and go nuts and go, but not, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden I can't focus on what's most important for my business and my clients' businesses. Yeah. And, and I found that, you know, if you just talk long enough, you're going to end up hearing all the major headlines anyways. And you can just ask questions because they're aware. Yeah. And, and so I found um, not, once again, it's not that I'm not aware and not that I don't care, but it, it I honestly can't control all of this. Right. You know, in my day to day, I cannot have an impact. Um, and so therefore, uh, that's how I've built. Uh, this is a little it was a, actually matter of fact, Darren Hardy, um, uh, give a shameless plug for him. And, and uh, who do read the compound effect? It was a course I took from him and he said. Shut down things, you know, turn off, turn off your social media stuff, turn off a lot of the news that you're getting um, and focus on where you add the most value in the world. And, and I found as a result of that, actually, this happened a year ago, Bill, I. Um, I had my appendix had burst and um, I was in the hospital week in Centralia, Washington, of all places, because I was halfway between Portland and Seattle. And I, I had an opportunity to kind of stop after I recovered um, from this and go, what do I want to do next? And that was one of the first things I did is I shut off a lot of the social media. I shut off a lot of uh, the news uh, inputs that I was getting. And I sure enough, I felt happier afterwards. Um, and so it was it was a combination of learning about it and the effect, but that's, that's what I've done. It's helped out a lot. And honestly, I like, and uh, did the shameless plug for you, Bill. I, I like um, periodic thoughtful messages, like what you do, where you take some data, you have some opportunity to look. And so I could really feel like I could grab something like that and yeah. it'd be, it'd be um, informational rather than just a headline. Right. Yeah. You know, cause it could be really dangerous. You just like the statistics lie thing. It'd be really dangerous when we talk about all these statistics that are out there. And of course, we've never talked about statistics more in our life, right? With yeah. think of COVID, right? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. 
And, yeah. and so anyways, that's what I've done. I think it's been helpful. I don't know. What have you done from that perspective? Well, uh, from, from the business leader's perspective, um, I'm, I've been surprised. I'll go speak at a trade association and at the cocktail reception, people are asking me about what should uh, the Federal Reserve do? And it's like, man, you're running a business and you're, you know, you cannot act. It's not actionable for me to tell you what the Fed should do. So I would suggest that every business leader understand what are the big levers of uh, profitability? Yep. What are the factors that will lead to it? You know, and it varies from company to company. Uh, often sales are, are part of that. And uh, Carl, you've probably helped more people figure this out than, than I have. But if you think, gee, the big levers of my business are consumers in this category spending and maybe exchange rates and maybe the cost of plastic, I don't know. Um, then when you run into an economist at a trade show, you start asking about those big, big levers. Yeah. And when news items come through, you know, ignore all of the political stuff and just focus on anything that might impact one of your the big levers of your business. That's right. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Great insight uh, there for sure. Bill, this has been uh, wonderful. I'm, I'm going to be, oh, actually I will do, I get to ask you one, one quick personal question because uh, it will be unfair for you not to get out of it. But of course, I'm going to be asking you to come on again because, uh, you know, economy changes as we know, as, sure. as we move along here. Um, uh, maybe ask kind of the, the fun one of, of, I think you have one of those jobs that everybody would love to do. Uh, I, at least I personally would. You, you got, I love what I do, but you got like job 1A in terms of being an economist. Um, how did you get that opportunity? Just, just share maybe briefly the kind of story of how you got the opportunity for this to be your profession, because it's not common, right, to truly get a, a profession and get paid to be an economist. Right. Well, I fell in love with economics. You know, I had a math aptitude, but I thought math was boring. I was interested in current events, but I thought political debates lacked foundation. Studied economics and said, wow, um, this is great. Then I had an undergraduate professor who actually was a real leftist. But as I headed off to graduate school, he said, Bill, you ought to give the corporate world a try rather huh. than just going into academics. Uh, and man, that was great advice. So I uh, got my dissertation done, taught for three years, and then I went. Uh, and got a corporate job, and I loved it. It was uh, more fulfilling and at, at twice the pay. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just really enjoy, and now I'm in a situation where, uh, as opposed to going deep into one particular sector, which I've done, uh, I'm trying to scan a broad set of economic information so I can talk to potato marketing people one week and plumbing manufacturers another week and the plywood folks another week and bankers in between and apply this body of knowledge. It's just, it's just fun. Bill, this has been great. So what is uh, one of my, I always like to ask a question to all my guests. What is a book that you'd recommend to our audience? The book I am most recommending these days is by Jonathan Haidt. It's called, can you see that? Mm -hmm. the, righteous the Righteous mind. mind. And in a time when we're so divided politically, but also to some extent by religion and culture, Haidt explains why we have different views, why we don't 
convince anybody. Have you ever convinced anybody on a subject of religion or politics or culture of a position that they didn't already agree with? You've probably had plenty of disagreements, but not one that you won and not one that the other person won. Hyde explains why. And I think it'll make us all feel more comfortable with each other. Wow. That's that's a great book and very timely uh, for sure. Yeah, Especially considering, once again, the environment that we're in uh, on a regular basis. Uh, Bill, where can people find and learn more about you? The name is Bill Connerly, and Google is really good, even if you misspell Connerly, spelled with one N, but Google knows. I've got a website, connerlyconsulting.com. I put out that newsletter. You can find it on my website. Got a YouTube channel. Again, just start Googling Bill Connerly, and uh, occasionally you'll find the uh, city planning director in Florida, uh, come up another Bill Connerly, but but uh, almost always you find me if you just say Bill Connerly and uh, Mr. Google knows where I am. Yeah, once again, I'm a uh, huge fan of you, Bill. And so, of course, asking that, would you be open to be one of my first, second uh, repeat guests uh, on the on the Measure Success podcast show in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's see that when you when you sucker him like that, I got a guy to run a marathon with me with that. So that's perfect, Bill. Thank you for. No, I'm not going to run a marathon, but I'll talk, <laughs> I'll talk on Zoom. No, no, just being on the show, just being on the show. But um, it's great asking that open air question while we're being recorded. But no, no, sincerely, I'll be reaching out in the future uh, in the next few months, and you know when time changes a bit and we have some more data, love to see where this tracking. I love your insights on a regular basis, Bill. Thank you so much for being on the Measure Success Podcast Show. Great chatting with you, Carl. Absolutely. And to everyone else, wishing you the very best at measuring your success. Wishing you a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.